Just a quick announcement before you get into this episode of Cybersecurity Decoded. Our latest annual report is now available to download for free. That's free of fees and free of registration. You can just download it from selabs.uk slash AR. And if you want to know about threat intelligence, details of how we test security products, and find out who won in our security awards, grab it as soon as you can from selabs.uk slash AR. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Decoded, providing in-depth insight into cybersecurity. Is your firewall as fast as you think? These network security devices cost a lot, but they don't always perform the way you might imagine. You can combine firewalls with other security products to extend your protection. Then there's a relatively new thing called XDR. What does it mean and how does it work? And from a personal security point of view, we look into the sometimes shady world of personal VPNs. Do you need one or should you actively avoid them? Show notes, including any links mentioned in the show, are available at decodedcyber.com. Hollywood movies on hacking, which we covered in depth last series, often talk about firewalls and the breaching of the same. But in most cases, a firewall is just one part of a load of security measures. We could talk all day about firewalls and how they can be set up, but let's start with the basics. A firewall is supposed to control what kind of information comes into a network and what can leave. It doesn't necessarily know the details of this information. A standard firewall wouldn't know the difference between your personal shopping list and a confidential spreadsheet. But it can spot types of traffic, email, voice over IP and web traffic. They're all examples of things a firewall can allow, block or prioritise differently. And while it's working hard to manage all of this traffic, it's probably trying to spot and block attacks too. Malware and exploits, for example. This requires a lot of brain power, and as firewalls can only have so much processing ability, something has to give when things get too busy. When you buy a large and expensive enterprise firewall, or even a little one for a small business, you'll want to check that it will be powerful enough to handle the traffic you expect today and in the coming months. Even cheap firewalls cost a lot, so you don't want to upgrade too often. And how do you know that the firewall you're going to buy is up to the job? Brian Monkman used to be a security tester at ICSA Labs and now heads up the network testing organisation NetSecOpen. He focuses on ensuring that firewall performance tests are fair and comparable. Brian, um, first things first, you know, we can get into really technical details about how to test network security appliances and that kind of thing. But at the very basic level, how would you judge the speed of a firewall? Is it as straightforward as just running lots of data through it and seeing how much it can handle? No, not at all. Um, there's there's an extraordinary number of variables to uh, con- to consider. I mean, the speeds and feeds is definitely uh, definitely one of the things to consider, but that really isn't um, the the complete picture. You, you need to consider the type of traffic that is going going through the firewall. 
Now, take, take for example, um, a healthcare entity, a firewall that's handling traffic that's related to healthcare. They're going to have a very different traffic profile than, say, a financial institution or an educational institution. And um, so it's really quite important to take all of that sort of thing into consideration. But that said, there will be some basic um, things that uh, you'll take a look at, regardless of what sort of uh, enterprise the uh, the, f- the firewall is uh, is protecting. So, if I was running a healthcare organization, um, you know, would I be looking out for adverts for firewalls that are particularly um, suited to my kind of organization? Not necessarily, because most of the firewalls out there um, today, in fact, quite frankly, I would be extremely surprised if if it was anything other than all of the firewalls out there, um, can be configured to um, address the, uh, the needs of uh, specific enterprises. So you could get um, a firewall from uh, vendor A um, working for you know, or being set up in an environment of a, of a large financial institution and the same um, the same uh, vendor's firewall could be used in a, a healthcare um, entity. Okay, so I go out there and I, I can choose from any of the main brands. And so long as I've got enough expertise, I can probably tease enough performance out of it. Correct. You know, that's, that's a reasonable assumption to make. Of course, there's going to be caveats, but, um, but yeah. There's always, always those. Uh, so let's say that we, I, we go shopping uh, and I need a 10 gigabit per second firewall because um, that sounds like a big number. Um, is that the only number that matters or are there other details um, on a, a data sheet somewhere I should be paying attention to? You, you should be, be paying attention to a number of different things. In, in the um, standard that um, our organization has developed, you know, we, we look at, a, we look at um, I, I would say, around, around 10 considerations or what we call uh, KPIs um, to, uh, to, to take a look at. So we, the first thing we're, we take into consideration is the application mix um, uh, profile. That, that's, that's important. So when you say an application mix, what's, um, in this context, what is an application? Well, uh, the, the traffic profile for, uh, for, for the enterprise. So in, in, you know, going back to healthcare, financial, um, you know, that sort of thing, education. So are we talking about protocols or are we talking about something more detailed than that? Um, yes, you're talking about protocols, but it can be a little bit, a little bit more detailed than that as well. Um, you know, for example, um, it wouldn't be unusual at all for an educational institution to want to use, um, a a video streaming service, you know, one of the uh, commercial ones out there. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that's a myriad of different protocols and, you know, different uh, traffic, rec- you know, type of traffic requests and, and, and so on. So it's more than just simple HTTP, DNS, SMTP, that sort of thing. It's, it, becomes, it becomes complex fairly, fairly quickly. Right. So if we, were, if we were setting up a secure network for a sales team, uh, we might assume that they'll want to make phone calls. So maybe SIP uh, or even something even more specific like Skype. That, that's the kind of thing you mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that's the sort of thing that we would inc- that we would include in the uh, in, in the in a traffic profile or application mix, right? And a financial institution would probably want to be able to shift uh, financial transactions with more priority than maybe email. Yeah, yeah, and that's definitely one way of, of looking at it. And and we're only just getting started in the specifics of the um, 
the application, um, you know, mixes themselves because it is extremely difficult to um, get parity between the various uh, test tools um, out there. So, so, so we're one link to buy a firewall and we're going to Cisco's website and Palo Alto's website. And we're looking, downloading all these, these spreadsheets and these, um, these data sheets. And we're seeing 10 gigabytes per second here. And we're, we're seeing other bits and bobs. Do, I mean, do the statistics that we see or the, the marketing claims that we see in those data sheets, uh, do they go down to that level of detail? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, it all, it all depends on who the target audience for the data sheet is. Um, the first question anybody who's reading a data sheet should be asking is, um, what is the configuration of the firewall itself? Are all the security controls necessary to deal with the traffic on? Or, um, as often is, is the case, you know, uh, are some, some of the uh, security controls turned off in order to improve, improve performance? You know what we do here uh, uh, here uh, when it comes to the uh, standard is our approach to testing is fundamentally different from that in that um, you decide what sort of um, security profile you want to uh, set up on on the product that's being tested. Then once the security pro- protocols um, have been addressed in the security policy, you verify that the product, the firewall, is operating as you would expect. And then at that point, you lock the configuration. You Mm -hmm. make no changes. So all the traffic that is coming through the firewall um, and being um, handled by the firewall um, will have to go through the various uh, policy engines that were were set up prior to testing. So does that mean that when you see the the headline figure of 10 gigabits per second, that's maybe the figure you could achieve without actually the security settings turned on? Possibly, yes. Um, not, but not in every case. It, it all it all depends on uh, on how the vendors decide that they want to represent it. A lot of the vendors who actually have the um, security policy turned on will document that in their data sheet. They may not go into voluminous detail that, but they'll provide a pointer to how the uh, product was configured uh, during uh, as a result of these. Uh, where the numbers are coming from and uh, and what what you're actually looking looking at, but that's that's one of the fundamental challenges of NetSec Open is to uh, get the test tool vendors, the labs, and the uh, security product vendors together and have everybody agree to what a reasonable standard um, should be in order to provide apples to apples comparisons between products. Yeah, so and we've seen that. So we we look at test, uh, data sheets and we do testing. And in some cases, you've just got that ten gigabit per second headline figure. And in other cases, they will say, well, it's in real life, it's going to be half that with security settings on. And in some cases, they even go to more specific detail and say, well, if you've got a lot of um, encrypted traffic, you know, SSL, the whole padlock in the browser thing, um, then it's going to be even slower. So there's this whole range of transparency and lack of and, and claims and, and counterclaims going on. I've seen that, yes. So when we come to look at reviews of firewalls, um, you can take the marketing claims from the vendors um, as truth, or you can, I guess, test it yourself. How would a, a big organization professionally test a firewall to make sure that it was suitable for their own purposes? Well, um, 
So the first thing that I would suggest they 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 do is that they uh, shortlist the products that they want to take a look at based on um, certifications against uh, the uh, NetSec open requirements. Of course, that's a shameless <laughs> sh- sh- a shameless plug, but um, that's that's definitely a good a good place to start. And since the standard that we've developed is um, open and public and available to everybody, you know. Uh, anybody with with um, a certain amount of competence can certainly re, you know reproduce um, the testing. Um, in addition to that, any products that have gone through the NetSec Open certification, the configurations of of those products are available uh, for anyone that that would like them. Um, second thing to do is to use uh, standardized test tools. So um, in in our case, you know we have. Um, you know, a, a few test tool vendors um, that are that participate in the program, and um, you know, there's uh, some of the products that have been verified as being able to produce comparable results have been accredited by NetSec Open. The beauty about that is it provides everybody a, a common starting point, and so an enterprise is going to take a look at um, data sheets and so well and say that well, this doesn't really perfectly fit what I want. But it's a reasonable starting point. So then you could take that reasonable starting point, get a get a dut, and uh, mod- make modifications to the test tool that you've acquired, um, and you know to suit your own environments and and uh, you know run run tests again. Mm-hmm. And a dut is a device under test, or I think we're also talking about systems under test these days, aren't we? This is true. It's um, yeah, the acronyms um, seem to be all over the place sometimes. <laughs> um- so at the moment, other than NetSec Open, because um, you guys are doing the standard by which other testers, I guess, should aspire to follow, are there like lots of different unbiased reports that people can go out and download um, publicly at the moment? There are other reports um, available to uh, to download publicly. Um, I do know um, of of a number of of labs that um, produce reports. Sometimes. They charge for them. They're behind a paywall. Other times, uh, they're freely available. The difference between um, test labs that you know, as they exist today, and what uh, what we're trying to do is the, the open and transparent nature of it, because you you don't really know how um, how test requirements have been developed in in a lot of test labs. Whereas you know, we were. Not only open and transparent, the standard that we've developed has been uh, contributed to the IETF benchmark working group and is, is going to be part of the public domain. So, um, you know, it's it's that there's our goal here is, has been to have been as open and transparent as we possibly can. And that's an often overused term, open and transparent. But. You know, our, our goal here is that if anyone wants to come to us and ask us specific questions, well, how did you come up with this or come up with that, we would be able to tell them. Mm-hmm. And what we find as well is being transparent is, as a tester anyway, is a very good way to show your competence. And what we find is very large organizations, kind of global 500 level, um, they will look at reports, but they won't base a buying decision on a report that I've published about a particular firewall, um, even if I agree with two or three other test labs, what they will do is they will judge us as testers 
And then if they're about to spend a million or more pounds or dollars or whatever on firewalls, they'll probably engage with the tester to do some work for them privately because they've got very specific needs. And every test is always based on some assumptions about what people are going to want. Correct. Yeah, there are very few enterprises that have the resources available to them to do um, a lot of the detailed testing that uh, they would want. <laughs> so when you when you do see one of these third-party tests, um, and you, Brian, yourself, you decide you're going to judge it and, and work out if it's valuable or not, what are the kind of some of the criteria you, you might use to to form an opinion? Well, first off, I'll look at their test the uh, the test methodology and and how how much detail they've they're prepared to uh, provide. Um, second, I'll I'll look at the uh, you know whether whether or not they've set themselves up to be um, governed by any sort of um, standards in order to ensure that the tests that they conduct are not only um, open and transparent, but are reproducible. Because one of the biggest variables out there is is that uh, you could take the same product, uh, the same uh, test tool, uh, the same uh, testing requirements, and come up with different results depending on who's, who's actually doing the testing. So one of you know that that's an important consideration as well. Transparency and as you said earlier, um, being able to reproduce results is very important. We not only um, provide test reports and certification reports publicly and at no charge, we also provide, as I said before, the uh, configuration uh, files for the device that was tested, and also a configuration information for the the test tool that was used. Right. So this this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. If if you don't have the config, then you really don't know what's going on. You could say this, exactly. this device runs at eight gigabits per second, um, but then when you look at the config, everything's turned off. So there's not really very much security going on. Right. Security products rarely work straight out of the box the way you need them to. There is configuration involved, and a useful test will tell you a lot about how it was conducted possibly including how the product was configured, or products, plural, because rarely do security products sit on their own in an organisation. If you've been hearing the buzzword XDR, you'll know that the security industry is looking to connect lots of different security solutions together. In our previous episode, Christian from Microsoft talked about integrating a variety of protection technology, letting email services and others speak to each other. This helps investigations. Is XDR, or Extended Detection and Response, simply an intelligent wiring together of firewalls, endpoint protection and cloud services? Or is there something more to it? Chad Skipper is VMware's global security technologist. He's been at Symantec, Silence, Dell and Cisco. So if anyone knows how security fits together, he should. Chad, we have EPP, EDR, NDR, IPS, NGFWs, and now XDR. WTH, does that all mean? Yeah, so let's let's go back a few years, right, Simon? You mind? Mm-hmm, no, please. So, I mean, you and I were back around, uh, you know, all the way from the original antivirus days. But in 2014, 2015, we began to see this EPP, this endpoint protection platforms, and we began to see the advancements of 
endpoint detection and response. And so from, from there, right, the reason that we are beginning to see what is called extended detection response is because the visibility that we get into the endpoint is great. That's on a process perspective, right? But this is about extending visibility beyond the endpoint, right? So our lack of visibility here is a driver, also a driver to extend the detection response beyond the endpoint to things like edge, right? Uh, network detection and response between the containers, between the VMs on, on all the clouds is because the threat detection we really need to begin to further detect those advanced threats within the organizations. And we, we know that those advanced threats can occur through many different ways of initial access. So we need to have that visibility into all of those extended telemetry. It's about connecting the blind spots, right? This is going to cure the incomplete and slow process, we hope, um, by extending the tech detection capabilities beyond the endpoint to, to include other telemetry out there. And it's just going to in increase the fidelity. It, the goal here, I, I think of XDR is, is ultimately to prevent and or, right, reduce that dwell time within, within the customer's environment. So speaking most simply, by providing as much context as possible to an attack that will help defenders work out what's gone on and maybe what they could do next. Yeah, so, so the SOC team enabled by, you know, multiple high fidelity telemetry feeds that, you know, an ecosystem XCR solution can provide can play that pivotal role in giving them visibility into what I think needs to happen into every packet and every process. Right. Yeah, so you've got you've got an endpoint, you've got a, a laptop running, for example, with a, an endpoint agent on it, and it sees something, something happens, but it doesn't know where that thing necessarily came from. But if you're monitoring the network as well, uh, you can put all the pieces of the jigsaw together. Correct, across the minor attack framework, right? So all the way from initial access to where they begin to discover, enumerate, Right, even lateral movement. Right, we we you know from a network perspective, you can see that um, adversaries are using common ports and protocols. So you need network telemetry to understand how they're using RDP, SMB, you know those protocols um, living within the noise of your network to move laterally. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting you bring up MITRE. So for those listening who don't know, uh, the MITRE attack framework is a way of it's a way of describing how the full attack chain can work. So it's very useful for testing because you can say, well, we want to begin the attack the same way that this particular bad guy did. And then we're going to do the same things that they did all the way through to the end, which would be stealing or damaging data or whatever. Um, so the MITRE attack framework is good for tests. But Chad, if you've got a combination of network appliances, endpoint agents and cloud services, um, that could be very complicated to test, couldn't it? A absolutely. Um, you know, everybody has a different ecosystem, right? They use, uh, you know, tools and, and, and network security appliances and endpoint agents and those cloud services in, in a very different way. You ask a customer, they, they, they deploy them in, in different ways. So testing those naturally, you know, what I've seen in, in, in the experience is, you know, those have their own labs in which they create their own architecture or duplicate their own architecture and begin to test, but it becomes very complicated in the, as well as, you know, um, when you begin testing with real malware, right? When you begin to, um, you know, exploit 
what you know, known as your own vulnerabilities and understanding the efficacies of the products and, and, and which are detecting or responding to those types of things. So testing all of those in combination, very, very difficult. Testing even one, right, it, it can, can be difficult as well. Absolutely. Testing realistically is crucial to assessing any security product. But XDR's potentially far-reaching view across a whole network means that realistic testing has never been more important. We'll look further into full attack chain testing later in this series. But for now, let's explore a different kind of network security. The sort that the TV adverts, if you still watch TV, would have you installing on your smartphone. VPN software offers to protect your privacy, but is there really a threat on public Wi-Fi these days if you've secured your devices using all the usual advice? Luis Carones works at security company Avast, which provides a range of products including antivirus and VPN apps. Luis, what would someone do if you connect to their network unprotected by VPN? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, if you connect like to a public Wi-Fi network, for example, uh, first you never know who is there, right? So anyone, I mean, like if there is like a black ha- hacker uh, messing around, he could see uh, oh, whatever you are doing on the internet. Does it mean that he can see, I don't know, if you go to Gmail, will be he seeing uh, your email address and your password? No, that doesn't mean that because that kind of traffic is is encrypted, right? But uh, not all traffic is encrypted. Not everything is about username and passwords. There are also cookies going around, and we have seen attacks where cookies are taken to take over sessions in emails and social media and other kind of places. It is true that it's different nowadays than it was like, I don't know, two, three, four years ago, where most connections in the internet were uh, were not encrypted. Nowadays they are, but still they can see where you're going to. Yeah, I mean, Google Google made that happen, didn't they? When Chrome yeah. stopped stopped working with unencrypted websites. Yeah, that, that was a big step. There is a reason why some governments in the world then don't allow their citizens to use VPNs now like in China. So they, they uh, VPNs do work. Otherwise, uh, the Chinese government wouldn't care if you were using a VPN or not. Well, that's an interesting point that you bring up there, that they do work, but then we don't really know how they work or often who's running them because some of the people that operate in the VPN world, some of those companies, they seem to be quite shady, don't they? Yeah, I, I, that's one of the critical points, and one of, that's actually one of my main concerns with VPNs. Because at the end, okay, I do this to be protected, right? So I'm using this VPN service, which means that whoever is running that service is actually seeing whatever you're doing, right? Uh, and if you don't know who that is, or if you don't know if it can be trusted, then it's you are better off without a VPN, right? Uh, there are a number of companies, like security companies, that offer the VPNs. Okay, I mean, if you are running their antivirus in your computer, uh, you trust them. So having a VPN, that's fine. I mean, like uh, they already know everything, <laughs> <laughs> right? If you have them installed in your computer, if it is an unknown company, and there are some savvy ones, because uh, we've seen 
people or companies that used to do some other business on the internet, which were barely legal. And now they are like buying VPN companies. And then you wonder, okay, why are they doing this? Okay, VPN is a perfect business. So it's a, yeah, but maybe they want to get access to that traffic to make a profit out of it. And they actually have access to that. Well, a VPN um, service that's free, I always think is a massive red flag. Why would someone give me a free service for me to put all of my internet traffic through their systems? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, it's not like, it's not something that cheap that you can give for free to everyone, right? Yeah. So I'm sure, I'm sure that even the ones you pay for can abuse your information. <laughs> everyone can abuse your information. Yeah. That's, that's also true. <laughs> but we can fool ourselves with making the right decision by spending 40 euros a month or a year or whatever. Yeah. Now, I mean, but if they are not getting any money from you, then where are they getting the money from? Daniel Cuthbert is the global head of cybersecurity research at a very large international bank. He has a long history of penetration testing and other security consulting roles, many of which he can't talk about. Dan, what do you make of the Wi-Fi threat? Should people be using VPNs today? I think what we've seen since the early days of Wi-Fi attacks and research, stuff like myself and Glenn were doing with Snoopy, Dino was doing with Karma, and indeed many others, those days are definitely behind us, and for good reasons. Um, we have back then, you really did need a VPN because using a Wi-Fi network, it was it was trivial to compromise clients and indeed gain access to data. But fast forward to 2022, and there have been some serious advances in mobile clients that kind of makes, for me personally, the need of a VPN less of an issue than it was, say, 2004. 2010. What are the threats, the main threats that people faced some years ago, which don't seem to be such a problem today? Two big things. I guess the first one was the lack of adoption of TLS. So a lot of sites did make use of plain text. So which means you could do interception and gain access to credentials. I think we've seen a widespread adoption of TLS, which is great. And then secondly, the controls around how mobile devices and indeed desktop devices connect to websites. So before it was trivial to do interception, it was trivial to do a man in the middle, um, that kind of style of attack. Whereas today, it's actually very hard. Um, and anybody who has set up some form of interception capability on modern networks trying to gain access to Facebook or Twitter or Gmail or any other of the modern sites, they will notice that it's not easy at all. So that's kind of where the big changes for me have happened. Mm -hmm. What about things like cookie theft? Is that still a problem? It is a problem if the site itself is still operating in a world where Britney Spears was this mega pop star doing really cool <laughs> music. And indeed, there are many out there still that do that but it's not as prevalent. It's not a case of, oh, if I grab your cookie, I can log in from anywhere. It, not like it used to be. I'm not saying it still doesn't happen, but we're not seeing the same level of ponage that we did you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I guess it, it comes down to your threat model now, doesn't it? If, if you are um, an uber secret guy that everyone wants to spy on, um, then if you're not using a VPN, they can't see the information that you're sending or receiving but they can see the sites that you're visiting potentially um, but most normal people 
the fact that you're visiting McDonald's or um, Lloyd's Bank, that's not really a problem. No, and, and, and my big concern is the, the actual VPN providers. Who are they? You know, what makes their security really good? Because, you know, just because you're routing traffic through their infrastructure, nobody's actually, you know, stepped back and went, are they doing the right things? You know, can they be subverted? You know, are their endpoints secure? All these types of things. And who has influence over them too? Yeah, you know, it's just a case of, oh, it's a VPN, it must be secure. It uses cryptography. <laughs> so what? And you're sending all of your traffic through this third party that you may or may not be paying. Yeah, and, and anybody who's spun up large-scale distributed systems will know that that stuff is not cheap. It really isn't, and it requires an obscene amount of maintenance and administration and looking at threats that come in and stopping those threats. And it's, you know, you've got to ask the questions, these cheap VPN providers, how are they doing it so cheaply? Well, that's an interesting point. So normally we, when we think of VPNs, we think it's a way to pop out in another country to stream some content. Um, but of course, it becomes like a proxy internet service provider. And with that comes a some kind of responsibility for filtering out some of the threats. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at some of the regions where these VPNs are hosted, again, if you look at the, the cost factor I just talked about now and maybe that country is under control of giving it access to data you need to build that into your threat model and I, I, between us and everybody listening i do think <laughs> the notion of everybody should have a threat model right it's the most complex and absurd thing you can expect no you shouldn't have a threat model right um that's only something that paranoid one percent security people have but i think you need to rethink how you look at a vpn and go Hang on a minute, they get to see stuff that I'm supposedly stopping other people from seeing? Back at the Decoded studio, Mark and I have a think about what we've heard from the guys selling the VPNs and the other experts who are less sure that they're needed. What we really want to do is answer the question about do you need a VPN at home? Uh, the short answer really is no but there's a little bit more to it. It's really less necessary at home than in public because your home network will already include security protections. It's got your username and your password to sign in, which provide a good la layer of security protection. But many people still use a VPN at home to prevent some form of online tracking or to stream certain types of content. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. Out of the house... It's a different matter. On an unsecured public Wi-Fi network, uh, hackers, criminals can easily in intercept anything you send or receive. So while most of your internet traffic is pretty uninteresting, I would imagine, <laughs> uh, it could include sensitive information like your bank account details, uh, credit card numbers, your logon credentials to any website uh, that you are visiting. And these attackers cast their net wide, which is why the free internet at public libraries, uh, airports, coffee shops pose a real high risk. By comparison, your home network is much safer. It's much less likely that someone can walk in to your house or sit on your driveway and join your network. Uh, plus, if you take all the steps to protect your home Wi-Fi router properly, things like changing the default username and password, which everyone should be doing, um, using a VPN at home for protection against cyber criminals is probably not going to be one of your top priorities, I'd say. 
But let's talk about how a VPN might be useful at home for some people. Uh, and it's not so much a security matter, because I think we've covered that in terms of passwords and usernames and changing default settings. It, the, the use of a VPN at home really comes down to a matter of privacy rather than security. And it can help you protect from a, num type, a number of types of privacy threats. Your online activity can be tracked at any time. Uh, you visit a website or you open an online application. Companies, uh, many companies now, collect this information about you so they can improve uh, their products. Uh, they show you targeted advertising based entirely on your online activity. Now, a VPN, uh, especially paired with a sort of an anti-tracking tool, perhaps can strengthen your anonymity and help hide your specific activity against uh, these trackers. And a VPN at home will not only add this extra layer of protection, but it also makes it harder for anyone to see exactly what you're doing since they won't be able to find your IP address. Keep in mind with a VPN, sites can still track what you're doing on their platform. So although you may be able to get to a site, once you're on that site, uh, it will be able to track your activity. And even when you go elsewhere and you remain on that site, they'll still be able to monitor you. Um, and that's how companies like Google use your data. And they learn a lot more about you than you might realize. But without a VPN, your internet service provider has access to everything you do online. Besides monetizing your data, the your internet service provider might throttle your connectivity speeds if you're downloading or streaming a lot. So hiding your internet activity in a private tunnel makes your ISP blind, which may help you in some of these cases. And in actual fact, one of the most popular reasons to use a VPN at home is to access streaming content that's not available uh, when you're traveling in certain countries. I know, Simon, you've come across this issue specifically uh, only recently. Yeah, I think getting access to streaming content is probably where most people will see some kind of value for using a VPN. There have been um, quite a few TV adverts for VPN services recently, so I think uh, more home users have become um, aware of, what, of, of such a thing as a VPN, uh, although they may not necessarily have a need for it. But certainly, you know, I was, I was in the States watching a movie on Netflix, for which I have a legitimate subscription, And when I came back, um, it, it pushed me off into a different movie altogether because I was back in the UK. Um, so I used a VPN to pretend to be in the States and I could then resume and finish the movie. So that was quite useful. Um, and they are quite high performance, so you can stream quite happily to a mobile device, for example. Although getting it set up with your Apple TV, I think, would probably be a lot harder to do. I think the important thing, though, for home users is to imagine that a VPN's function is to encrypt your information as it flows across the internet. And what you said, Mark, earlier about the website still being able to track you is absolutely spot on. Um, they'll be able to track you as you move between them. You'll still see targeted advertising. So what you're really doing is hiding your internet behavior from your ISP. And you might think that that is super paranoid to want to do that. But there could be good reasons. So, for example, um, it was a long time ago, but um, BT, it was British Telecom at the time, experimented with um, a commercial company looking into targeted advertising. So without actually giving permission, everyone who used BT broadband at the time, they were being tracked and another company was going to use that information to serve 
advertising towards them. And it was very specific targeted advertising. So it's very, very creepy. So you may choose not to trust your ISP or they may block content that you want to get access to. One of the big classic examples is if you're in China, they've got the special firewall in China, which blocks the citizens in that country from accessing certain kind of news, for example. Well, you might find the same thing with your home ISP. They may block certain kinds of content. We're talking about ISPs here, and we've we've talked about them being um, the bad guy in some of these uh, in some of these scenarios we're talking about. Um, but what we have to remember is that although we might be hiding our activity and location from our ISP by using a VPN we are still exposing that information to whoever's providing the VPN. So it is a balance of trust. Who do we trust more, our ISP or our VPN providers? Because at the end of the day, it's a pick and choose between the two. Yes, and I think that for the people who are trying to access content that they're being blocked from so american netflix for example or let's say that you know that's just the big elephant in the corner of the room, pornography for example uh, you might be at home and you're you might be staying with your parents and they may have blocked sort of adult content and you might want access to it so a vpn would allow you to do that so it's not so much you have to distrust your isp it's more you're getting around some kind of access control that's there but then you are putting all of your eggs into that one basket of the VPN provider. If it's a company that you you think is credible and inverted commas trustworthy, I mean, tech companies don't have a great reputation for having our best interests at heart. Um, But if you do trust that, maybe you could say, well, F-Secure, they do a VPN. I trust F-Secure enough to use their VPN over all the different ISPs and Wi-Fi hotspots and things that I'm going to use in the course of my, my year. But free VPNs really worry me because how is a company able to provide a big, fast, global networking infrastructure for free just to be nice to me and let me access porn or or kind of political content that I, I want to get to? That does seem too good to be true. Not all of these VPN companies are good. Some have got quite shady pasts and some have been caught out um, stealing and and abusing information that they've caught uh, from their so-called clients. Before we summarise really what our conclusions are on on whether we need a VPN at home, which we have already given the Mm -hmm. answer to, which is probably no from a security perspective. It's in like in your house. In your house, yes. We'll talk about, we'll just go over some of the advantages because people do use VPNs and people are, are, are paying money for them. We'll go through those advantages and then it's up to the individual person whether they decide uh, whether a VPN is ro- at home is right for them or not. Mm. So the streaming content that we've spoken about, it is possible to stream content from different parts of the world using a VPN because you just change your location. But be aware, this may not be legal in the country that you're in. Um, and equally, the a lot of these streaming content providers are becoming wise to this um, and are attempting to block it. But it is an advantage. Using a VPN will ease your fears about using public Wi-Fi, but that's a different matter. It's not what we're covering here. We're, we're talking about using VPNs at home. Uh, we would recommend using a VPN uh, when you're on public Wi-Fi. Well, I might have a different view on that. Actually. Go on. 
that people in the old days would tell you, you know, you go to San Francisco to a conference and you've got the hotels and you've got McDonald's and you've got these open Wi-Fi um, networks everywhere. And you probably would have been a bit bonkers not to have used a VPN in those circumstances because you'd log in to your email, um, you'd maybe log into your bank. And in those days, a lot of the websites that we logged into didn't use encryption. So your bank almost certainly would, you know, PayPal, for example, always had that padlock up in the in the browser screen. And one would hope that the mobile apps had the same level of protection, although we know people um, who tell us otherwise. Um, so in those days, logging into your email, your email account is very important. Your password would leave your computer and go through that Wi-Fi network in clear text. So bad guys could read it. And you and I, Mark, have both used equipment where we can sit in uh, areas where there's public Wi-Fi and um, get access even without the passwords. So it's and it's it's a cheap and relatively easy thing to do, actually. So in those days, a VPN was quite sensible because it encrypted your traffic through that insecure network. But some time ago, Google decided that everything should use encryption. So the Chrome browser was made to essentially fail if you tried to visit a website that didn't have the padlock. And so if you go to one of those sites, you get a black screen and it says, you know, this is a bit dangerous. Are you sure you want to proceed? And there is a link to carry on, but it's hidden quite low on the page and it's very small text. They really don't want you to do that. So that put pressure on all these websites to get the padlock, which means that these days it's actually quite rare to find a website that doesn't encrypt the traffic between you and it. And I think that has made the, the home security features of a VPN redundant now. I don't think that in your, on your laptop or your phone, you do need to use a VPN um, when you're out and about using public Wi-Fi. Okay, that's fair enough. The, the padlock icon on websites, um, the HTTPS uh, protection that provides is fair enough. And we see it quite often now. And we see the warnings when mm. you're trying to get to websites that don't have that. But what happens if you are in Starbucks, for example, and you're, uh, you're looking for the Starbucks free Wi-Fi, but instead of logging into Starbucks free Wi-Fi, you log into Starbucks Wi-Fi free. An impersonating so, access point. Yeah. So you've got a man in the middle attack. Is that, is that still a concern? I mean, it's not ideal uh, when that kind of thing happens. And what anyone with a control of those access points can do is to see where you're going. So let's say I caught you out in that way and you logged into my um, special access point. I could work out which bank you used if you went to your bank. Um, mm -hmm. But I still wouldn't see your password because it would be encrypted. Would you have, could you have a sort of keylogger? Well, we could do a man in the middle attack. So encryption isn't um, invulnerable to this there mm. will be there are clever ways of doing it but you're kind of getting up into quite high-end kind of nation state levels of surveillance at that point mm -hmm. and the way the technology works these days i'd be surprised if you didn't get some kind of complaint from your software saying oh i'm not sure about this certificate i'm being asked to use are you sure and you know a lot of people would go yeah i am sure and they'd click okay and then they would be vulnerable to that kind of man in the middle attack mm. but if we're talking about home users and not business people I think that the risk is significantly lower today than it was. And I think people don't 
care as much about their personal security on their devices. They take a lot of it for granted. So to expect them to use a VPN for the very, very minor increase in protection that they'd get, I think is unreasonable. Okay, that's fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't expect that. (laughs) No, I didn't. No. I'm going back to the advantages after uh, Simon scuppered my um, comment about (laughs) using public Wi-Fi. Uh, We've talked about unblocking websites. Uh, Simon talked about um, a particular scenario, but you might be at school or work or even abroad, and there may be blocks that um, have put in place for whatever reason. It may be censorship. It it may be for saving bandwidth, trying to increase productivity uh, with your work to stop uh, employees going on social media and spending all their time doing that. GDPR as well. So mm-hmm. um, when the rules in Europe came out about data privacy, a fair number of US-based websites simply blocked access from Europe because they didn't want to go through the headache of complying with the law. So you must have seen it where you try and get to a website and it just says, sorry, you're not in the States, you can't see this content. Yes, and of course, using a VPN would get around yes. these issues. Mm-hmm. Shopping deals, actually, is something that uh, people use VPNs for. Because the VPNs cloak identity um, and keep companies and third parties from collecting data about your online activity, you potentially could actually save a little bit of money uh, shopping. Things like flight tickets, hotel rooms, car rentals, those websites often have tracking activity and they hike up your price if you visited their site a number of times. They can also change their price depending on your location as well. Uh, So using a VPN combined with anti-tracking features, um, something similar to that, will enable you to compare prices and get the cheapest deal without you being unnecessarily penalised for, for visiting the site multiple times. I'll tell you a funny story, Mark. <laughs> on, Have you been done by this? Well, I, I had to use a VPN to get around our own bank's security. Yeah. So I was using a Wi-Fi hotspot at a travel lodge in the UK, and for some reason the security system at our bank decided it didn't like me connecting to it. So it locked me out of my account and I couldn't do something fairly important from the hotel. Mm -hmm. So I used a VPN. I gained access to the bank again, did what I needed to do. And then about a week later, I got a phone call from their security team asking me about what had happened. And I owned up to using a VPN to bypass their blocking. And they were like, okay, well, we understand, but please don't do that again. (laughs) But I mean, how lame is that? They've they've locked away a a Wi-Fi system that they don't trust And yet I could bounce off Bulgaria and they're absolutely fine with that. So there are a number of benefits of using a VPN, but these cost money. Mm. Um, And as we've said, we've pointed out that if you're going to uh, get a VPN, then it's worth investing in a paid product from a company that you have some trust in because it does cost to provide this service and your data is more questionably being used from a free service than it is with a paid-for service. I think a good rule would be to make sure you trust your VPN provider at least as much as you trust your own internet service provider. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Although it just doesn't worth it, is it? You know, because you're just you're just replacing one large tech company with another. Mm-hmm. There are some other disadvantages to using a VPN. Um, since the VPN 
uh, connection means your web traffic is going through additional steps like um, the encryption and connection to another server, you uh, could experience a decrease in your browsing speed. Now, this is probably less relevant for more premium VPN services, which if you are going to use them, the ones that we would recommend, they, they've they got other mitigation uh, measures put in place designed to reduce any s- slowdown. It would be surprising if a VPN didn't generally slow down your traffic. The, the one exception that I can think of would be where you've got an ISP who's throttling your um, internet because it doesn't want you to saturate its network. So for example, you might be on an ISP's network and want to use something like Netflix, and they might be giving priority to their own uh, media streaming service. So they might throttle Netflix stuff. And in that situation, using a VPN might give you a better experience. Yeah, But that's because you're getting past someone purposefully slowing down your traffic, which really sucks. But because a VPN uses encryption, if there's nothing, no shenanigans like that going on with the ISP, you would always expect a VPN to be slower yeah. than not using a VPN. There's more work for it to do. Yeah, and yeah. it's hopping through other systems on the network. Mm. More more distance for the data to travel, if you want to put it that way, but also the data is being encrypted. So all these computers are using up processing cycles to handle it. It would make sense to choose a VPN uh, that doesn't log the websites you're visiting, the apps you're using, or any of the content that you're consuming. Um, and this is something to look out for if you do pick a, a VPN. I'd love to know how you would verify that they don't log. Though. Oh, yes, it's a marketing claim. But you just have, again, it comes down to uh, the trust of the company that you're that you're using. And there was a case a little while ago with ProtonMail, um, a secure email service, where law enforcement got in touch with them and did get some kind of metadata off them. Mm. Um, And I suspect that if you were a VPN operator and you genuinely didn't log anything that came along and then the the local police or government came to you and said, I want you to track Simon, um, they're going to do that for them. They will turn on logging if uh, they're asked to. Uh, So it comes down to the question, which is what this podcast is all about. As at home, do I need... A VPN. I think a home user no longer needs a VPN. It used to be part of um, a security toolkit that we would recommend most people have, but kind of didn't expect many people would bother with. Now I think it's absolutely not a necessity, but it can be a useful tool for fun stuff, like in this country at least, for accessing content that might yeah. not be generally available to you. But it's more a leisure uh, utility than a, a security need now. That's right. I'm probably a little bit more um, skeptical than you. I certainly wouldn't use a home VPN uh, for the vast majority of the time. But I'm still, I, I'm still of the old school. I remember being taught about <laughs> yeah. all the man in the middle attacks at your local Starbucks and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So generally, if I'm using a public Wi-Fi at a library or an airport or uh, something like that, I'll tend to use a VPN service that you can just put on um, for a. You can just have it for a day or a few hours or something like but that. You're probably more interesting than most normal people, though. Like if you're an absolute standard user um, and someone set up a man in the middle thing. What most people are doing won't be of any interest to the bad guys with that level of technical capability. But as a business person working in the cybersecurity world, 
I would much rather hack someone like you than Mr. Miggins who's going on holiday to Spain with his kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The vast majority of people are probably in Starbucks are just on social media anyway. Yeah. And so you could probably just go online and see what they're posting. Oh my God, can you imagine how boring, <laughs> it's like social media is boring already. Imagine yeah. watching other people doing social media. Yeah, yeah. Dull. And now, just before we finish, it's security life hack time. At the end of each episode, we give one or two special security tips that work for real people in the real world, for work and in their personal lives. This episode's life hacker is VPN pioneer, unwanted software crusader and science fiction author, Dennis Batchelder. This is Dennis from Apostine. Have you ever wanted to lend your phone to somebody but were hesitant because you didn't want them to steal something from it or to see something that they shouldn't? There's a great solution for that. Use the guest mode on your phone. If you have an Android device, it's called guest mode. If you have an iPhone, it's called guided access. Just search for it, turn it on. You'll love it and it will save you. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, please send a link to just one of your close colleagues. We also have a free email newsletter. Sign up on our website where you'll also find this episode's show notes and bonus episodes featuring full-length interviews with our guests. Just visit decodedcyber.com. And that's it. Thank you for listening. And we hope to see you again soon.